Hello, and welcome to the February Lancet Healthy Longevity podcast. This month, we're talking about the BASIL trial, which looked at behavioural activation as an intervention to prevent depression and loneliness among older people with long-term health conditions during the COVID-19 lockdowns. I'm joined by David Ekers, the Clinical Director for Research and Development at the Tees Eskimo Ware Valley's NHS Foundation Trust, Simon Gilbody, a professor at the University of York and the whole York Medical School, and Judith Webster, the Patient and Public Involvement Co-Investigator for the study. Judith, could I just get you to introduce yourself? Yes, my name's Judith Webster and I am the PPI Co-Investigator for this research study. Brilliant. Simon? Hi there, I'm Simon Gilbody. I'm the Professor of Psychological Medicine and Psychiatric Epidemiology at the University of York and the Hull York Medical School. So I'm a psychiatrist and an epidemiologist by trade. And together with my colleague, Professor David Ekers, we, we designed and we um, led the Basel study, which we're going to speak about today. So we were co-chief investigators. Brilliant. And Dave? Hi, yeah. So uh, I'm David Ekers. So I'm uh, the Clinical Director for Research and Del- uh, Development at the Tees Escombe Valley's uh, NHS Foundation Trust up in the northeast of the UK uh, and have been somebody that's worked uh, on using behavioural activation and researching behavioural activation for some time. I'm a nurse by background. Uh, I'm visiting professor at University of York and have worked with Simon for a long time and uh, it's been a pleasure to to co-lead this uh, this research uh, with Simon and our other colleagues uh, who have been uh, great throughout the whole thing. Brilliant. Thank you so much. So let's get started. So what do we know about the mental health of older people during the COVID-19 pandemic? So that's a great question. We, um, we, we were all sat at home when the pandemic started and we've been researching the mental health of older people for a number of years. And we, we got a sense that this was going to be a deeply disruptive event for older people, particularly older people with long-term conditions who were all of a sudden asked to isolate and to shield. And um, we knew that that would potentially be toxic to the mental health of older people. We knew that that would particularly put them at risk of depression and loneliness. So we know that those are bad for people's mental health and also for their physical health. But that was our sense. We have we were flying blind. Um, we asked people who might know a bit more about this. So we asked Judith, um, who had been working with the team, um, what um, the pandemic might mean for um, the mental health of of older people, and, and she, she she echoed this. And I think it was borne out by a number of members of the the team who had older relatives who'd all of a sudden become socially isolated. So so my father was unable to go out. And I, I very rapidly saw his mental health and his physical health deteriorate quite quickly. He became frail. So, but we were flying blind a little bit. And it took a couple of years before definitive research came out that actually mapped the mental health consequences, the impacts on older people. One of the things that we're really good at in this country is establishing cohorts, groups of people who you follow up over time. And there's a rather famous, really important cohort that's been running for a number of years in the United Kingdom, the English Longitudinal Study of Aging. So there was a super study came out about 18 months after the pandemic had hit, led by Professor Andrew Stepso, and that showed that older people were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic and that um, particularly people, as we suspected, with long-term conditions and with frailty, um, 
They experienced profound sleep problems. The rates of loneliness increased substantially, and there were also increased rates and greater levels of symptom burden among people with long-term conditions in terms of depression and anxiety. So our hunch was that it would um, uh, adversely impact on the mental health of older people. And research since then has borne out that it's been shown to be true that the pandemic impacted on their mental health of older people. And, uh, at a population level, that's true, but individually it was catastrophic for some people's physical and mental health. And your trial used an intervention called behavioural activation. So can you tell us a bit more about sort of what behavioural activation is and the sort of specific uh, specific actions that someone might take? Yeah, so so we've been, as a team, we've been researching behavioural activation for some time in various settings. Behavioural activation is a, it's a talking tree and uh, it works on the principles of uh, behavioral psychology, in particular, the understanding that when things happen in people's lives, they become cut off from things that are important or from a behavioral psychology perspective that, that give them positive reinforcement. The aim of behavioral activation simply is to help people plan to get back in touch with those things in their environment that are helpful and healthy for them. So, so it's a very doing treatment. It's a very practical treatment. And it's a treatment that's aimed but helping people understand that rather than wait to feel better to do things, there are things that they can plan to do that will help them feel better. And that's a really difficult thing to do when you're depressed. So there's a lot of skill involved in in helping people learn that and, and helping people develop steps to put themselves back in touch uh, with things in their world that are important to them. We've been... Uh, before we started on this study, we, as part of a larger program of research, we've been adapting behavioural activation because we felt that this was particularly relevant for, for older adults who had physical health problems. And we had spent about a year, year and a half before the COVID pandemic adapting treatment manuals to really work with people where life changes linked to, to uh, ageing and frailty were at the core of understanding uh, our intervention and understanding those steps that people can take. So we were in a good position then to to uh, rapidly adapt this when COVID came along to take into the account, as Simon said, the the the, the added complication of the restrictions that were put on uh, uh, that that group of people, people over sixty five with physical health problems, and we we then moved into the Basel study as a result. Some of the things that we would get people to do, so so people perhaps who are, are getting old and some they might have enjoyed previously going to the gym uh, and they can't do that anymore because of various physical health problems, we might look with them to, to kind of break down what it was about going to the gym that was good for them, talk them through that and help them plan behaviours uh, that are possible uh, but that give them that sort of equivalent sense of connection with the world that's going to offer them some positive reinforcement. So, so practical things like, um, you know, doing some light exercises at home uh, in the Basel pandemic. Uh, in the Basel study, it was difficult, uh, obviously, because people couldn't have that social contact, but actually how they may connect with friends and colleagues over the phone or for some people over the internet to plan to do things together and talk about how it's going. And then what you do is you plan that into your day. So 
So instead of waiting until you feel okay to do these things, you plan it into the day and then see how it makes you feel and then just gradually build that program back up. Uh, so some of the things, you know, are active things, but other things are, are less active. So so a lot of people uh, in the study very much uh, focused in on social contact and how to plan in social contact. Uh, some people decided to, um, uh, you know, to, to try, you know, if, if uh, they were used to enjoy things like embroidery, actually the, 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 the facilitators of the sessions would help them plan steps, how they could get back into that if that had been cut off because of any physical health problems. So there's a big variety. There's no one set of behaviors that will be in an action plan. These are very much negotiated individually through the support worker that would phone up uh, the, the study participant each week in a brief phone call, about 20, 30 minutes, and help them start to understand and plan activities back into their day that helped put them back in touch with the things in their world that would be healthy for them. And, and in a way, that's behavioral activation. And that's why we've always like this because it's a fairly straightforward intervention that seems to lend itself to to training lots of people to become the facilitators to help uh, deliver it. Uh, so it doesn't require very highly trained uh, psychotherapists to conduct the intervention. Although in our previous research, the results that you get out of it seem to be equivalent to those interventions that do require uh, much more highly trained individuals. So, so uh, that, in a nutshell, is what behavioural activation is. That's great. And Judith, do you want to tell me about how you became involved in the study and, and what your role was? I became involved in the study because I've been uh, an involvement member of Tuesday and Weir Foundation Trust for about 18 years. And this study was advertised that they required people to be part of a PPI group. And so I applied and I was asked for an informal interview only to find out when I got there that I knew most of the people. And I was successful, which is why I'm still here. And so you have a history of, of, of being involved in research and working with researchers. Not just research, but all involvement regarding uh, mental health throughout uh, the trust. And how did um, you have to adapt the way the patient and public involvement advisory group ran due to the COVID pandemic? Because I, you know, I imagine that you know before you might have had meetings in person or, or small group meetings. I'd imagine things had to change quite a lot. Well, like everybody else, we moved to Zoom meetings, um, but it never stopped us being involved. Um, the information was sent out to us in a timely manner so that we chance to digest it. Uh, and our opinions were voiced, obviously, through the meetings and agreed upon. Uh, but throughout it all, this whole group, I can honestly say, never felt as though we were just a tick box. Our opinions were valued and thought about and a consensus came about throughout the whole of the teams. I mean, that's really fantastic to hear because I think, you know, it's it's fantastic that I think more and more 
research that you know we see submitted to the journal is involving sort of the wider community in research design and the way that participants um, are recruited and also the way that they they interact with the study um, but I can also see that yeah in some cases like like you mentioned that it could be a tick box to exercise so it's fantastic and so I mean you know was that the main reason that it was so enjoyable to be involved and why it was so successful or are there other things that you think helped as well? When we first had, I think, the first two face-to-face meetings, they were a fabulous, fabulous group who really got on well. And we all had different opinions. And there was one specific example where I gave my opinion and other people gave theirs. And then this one gentleman came up with his opinion and it stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, do you know, you're absolutely right. And everybody else felt the same way. It was just everybody's voices were heard, listened to and agreed upon. They were a super group, absolutely one of the nicest groups uh, I've ever been involved in. That's really fantastic to hear. And then if we sort of go back to the the trial, so what were the outcomes that you were looking at when you were were trialling this um, behaviour activation so we looked at a number of outcomes um, and um, we had to decide really quickly. The trial was designed and we got ethical approval within about three weeks of the pandemic starting. So we had to pivot and act quickly and make some big decisions. So in choosing our outcomes, we, we spent some time thinking about what we knew about the research, what we knew about the nature of the problem, but also we took good advice and wisdom from our PPI group. So Judith and her colleagues helped us at every stage. And we very quickly realised that depression and loneliness were the big players here. And um, so we we measured depression as the primary outcome. We used that, uh, a validated scale to measure levels of severity of depression and how they changed over time. We measured that in the short term, at one month, and then um, to see if it was sustained after the uh, behavioural programme had finished, we measured it at three months. And we're going to go back and um, look at the longer term outcomes as well. But the, the paper we published um, today is the, um, uh, the the one of three month outcomes from the study. So depression is the primary outcome. But I mentioned that loneliness was something that was really important. So um, there was some discussion within the team about whether we should um, uh, set loneliness as the primary outcome or whether we should set depression and um, you had to choose one and um, depression ended up as the primary outcome in in the end. But we also used a a validated measure of loneliness and um, so we tracked that in the short and in the medium and in the longer term as well. And we also captured a a full range of physical and mental health outcomes. So we also looked at anxiety, we also looked at quality of people's social networks, and we also looked at quality of life. Those are the important ones that we highlight. And we, we got quite quite a broad range of outcomes. So those were our quantitative outcomes. Uh, we work at the University of York, the beating heart and um, seat of health economics as a science. So we also work quite closely with health economists to look at the cost effectiveness of the intervention. That's not reported in the study just at the moment. But we also work very closely with colleagues who had expertise in qualitative research. So alongside those qualitative and economic outcomes, uh, quantitative and economic outcomes, we also um, did a series of in-depth 
uh, individual and group interviews with people who had been involved in the trial, but also people who'd been involved in the delivery of the intervention, and also people who were involved in the offer of primary care um, for uh, for people who participated in the trial. So we've got quantitative, economic, and qualitative outcomes. Primary outcome was depression, but we're also very interested in the uh, levels of loneliness within our population because um, we thought that the social isolation that people were experiencing during the pandemic will be particularly toxic in terms of um, uh, uh, causing loneliness. And there's an emerging body of research that shows that loneliness is a really important outcome that's historically not been well studied. Very few mental health trials have studied loneliness. But the epidemiology tells that loneliness is as bad for your physical health as smoking 16 cigarettes a day. So loneliness is the new smoking, so we also captured loneliness. And for the the paper that we we're about or well, we published, um, what were the results from the, the the study? So working through the results in the paper, the primary outcome was depression. So we saw a very rapid reduction in levels of depression as measured by the patient health questionnaire nine ISO uh, instrument. So um, at one month there was a rapid reduction in. Um, levels of depression severity, and that was maintained at three months. And the levels of reduction in depression severity between the two groups was broadly in line with that you might expect from other forms of talking therapy, often more intensive forms of talking therapy. So the benefit in terms of reduction in depressive symptoms was immediate and sustained and was at a level of magnitude that you would expect for cognitive behaviour therapy or for antidepressant medication. So that was our primary outcome. I mentioned we were also very interested in loneliness as an important secondary outcome. So we measured loneliness using the standard questionnaire and we saw sustained reductions in the level of loneliness um, as part of um, the instrument that captures the emotional aspects of loneliness. So we didn't see increases in people's social networks, but we saw improvements in the quality and intensity of those existing um, social interactions. And this was captured using our loneliness measures. So um, this was really interesting. I mentioned that very few trials have measured loneliness as an outcome. So um, this is the, the largest trial ever undertaken of a brief psychosocial intervention it's also measured loneliness at the same time. So we saw that double benefit of reductions in depression severity and reductions in level of loneliness. We saw some suggestion of improvement with anxiety, but that didn't reach a statistical significance. Um, perhaps if we'd have uh, run a larger trial, we might have captured a benefit in terms of anxiety because we often see that levels of anxiety go down in parallel with depression when we um, uh, deliver interventions like behavioral activation. And we saw improvements in quality of life, particularly the mental health aspect of quality of life, but we didn't see any improvements in terms of um, physical aspects of quality of life. So um, so it was an interesting range of outcomes. A primary outcome um, demonstrated a benefit for the intervention at one and three months, and our important secondary outcome, loneliness, also demonstrated a benefit at three months. Yeah, that's so interesting. And you, you can imagine for those um, physical aspects of quality of life that even even with sort of all the work put in that the restrictions in those early days of the pandemic just just did make it very, very challenging to kind of move and, and, and things. Um, and so 
you've talked about sort of longer term outcomes and also you've got the economic side you're going to look at and sort of qualitative data. But but what are the future research plans following this trial? Well, I think um, we, you know, what Simon said was that we've got some really uh, good uh, and promising results uh, from this study. And I think there's two kind of key areas that we're thinking about as a as a research team at the moment. The first is actually how do we then take this intervention that we developed and tested during the pandemic time and implement it outside of a pandemic situation so people can get the benefit of what is a relatively straightforward and simple intervention uh, delivered outside of a pandemic and, and do we get sort of similar results? So that that implementation type research, I think, is a really important question for us to think about over the next few years about how we can make this accessible and useful within the NHS. I think the second research area that's really important is is probably the research area that we originally set out to look at in the in the MODS program, and that is can we adapt uh, a, a practical intervention like behavioral activation that we used uh, in this study to target both uh, functioning, but functioning of psychological functioning and physical functioning. And that was really our aim when we uh, embarked on this program of research. And at the start, we'd adapted our our interventions to to really look at that uh, adapting behavioral activation to take on some of those physical functioning things that we see with people over 65 with multiple health conditions and depression. Unfortunately, the pandemic came along and it, and, it, and it sidetracked us and we have to move to the Basel study and we've run out of time. So we are currently running a small randomized trial to, to look a bit more and understand a bit more about those adaptions that may work to really focus in that sort of um, physical, mental functioning area. Uh, but there's more research to do in that area. I think there's more research. We will learn something from that a small study that we're just wrapping up at the moment, uh, but that we will need to take that research further in future studies uh, after we conclude our current program because we've run out of time. So they're the sort of two key areas that we are thinking about as a study team. Uh, but I'm sure as we start looking at the economic and qualitative outcomes in more depth, some other things will emerge uh, because it's been a, a really rich uh, program of research that has uh, that has uh, given us some good answers but thrown up a lot of important questions as well. I'll just add something to Dave's answer there as well. So this is by some stretch the largest ever trial that's intervened to tackle loneliness as a particular psychological problem. So loneliness is increasingly recognised as um, a major threat to public health and I think people are scratching around trying to find out how best to respond as a society or how health systems might um, respond. So it's a priority for the World Health Organization just at the moment. So um, since this is a big trial, we've substantially added to the randomized knowledge that we currently hold as to how you might intervene, mitigate or prevent loneliness in particular. So one of the things that we've done alongside this trial is we've set in place what we call a living systematic review. So each time a new trial comes out, what we do is we add that to all the trials that have gone before. So the Basel trial is one of the largest trials that's ever been undertaken to tackle loneliness. So um, the Basel trial, alongside 
other trials that are starting to emerge are, 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 are going to be prospectively added to a meta-analysis to give a sense of um, how best we might intervene to tackle or mitigate loneliness. So the this Basel story doesn't end here. It's added to the Basel Living Systematic Review. So we hope that we'll keep that up over in coming years and that we'll have um, a, a rolling and accumulating evidence base that will give us um, high quality uh, research to inform practice and policy as to how we might tackle the global epidemic of loneliness. So we think the influence of Basel will be um, how it contributes to um, uh, uh, prospective meta-analyses as well and it help us understand how psychological interventions can be used to prevent and mitigate loneliness. Fascinating. So watch this space is, uh, is, is what we're doing. Um, and so finally, if, if just sort of taking a step backwards, um, what sort of work do you think still needs to happen to combat loneliness and depression in older people? I don't know, Judith, if you want to take that one or someone else. I, I wrote something down. I don't think you'll ever stop this. Um, and I've a, I'm a firm believer that, that the cost of living at the moment is having as big an impact as COVID in the respect um, the cost of food, the cost of heating, uh, means people have to, can't afford to socialise as much. And I do believe um, that this uh, behavioural activation does need rolling out now and it's been proven affordable and successful. And my opinion is because of the new transformation hopes that are coming in throughout the country, that could be a perfect place for this to happen. And referrals can come from the first contact mental health workers at GP surgery and signpost them to these hubs where they can be assessed and, if necessary, offered the intervention. So great thoughts from Judith there. I mean, to, to which I would probably add that, um, you know, I'll probably use a slightly different language to describe the same thing, but, you know, depression and loneliness are, are, are social problems largely determined by um, social and environmental factors. So it's really important that we think about the, the social and economic context within which um, depression and loneliness occur. And we just saw a massive explosion of, um, of, of risk factors around the time of the pandemic. So I think we can learn from that. Um, so it's really important that we think about the causes of the causes of, uh, as Michael Marmot would say. Um, however, that doesn't um, distract from the importance of uh, individual interventions, I think such as we've um, we've mapped out with the Basel trial. Um, so very brief, scalable psychosocial interventions that could be offered at a population level, I think is um, an important priority for us as researchers. And we think that that's an important message for policy and practice. And Behavioural activation is a good example of something where you don't have to um, uh, tra train people for years and years to enable people to um, to deliver it. And the, the qualitative research that emerges from the Basel study tells us that this is very acceptable. Uh, it's a phone-based intervention as well, so you don't have to go and find a parking slot in a hospital car park and uh, travel a long way to do it. So people have told us that they really liked um, using the phone. So I think that allows us to... Think a bit more, um, uh, uh, bit more widely about how psychological interventions can be delivered. So I think the pandemic's taught us that we, we can do this sort of thing over the phone, and that increases the access and availability of brief psychological interventions, such as behavioural activation. So 
um, I think we'll probably see a bit more of that. And um, I think this gives us some sense about how we might scale up some of these interventions at um, uh, at a societal level. So, um, so I think ensuring that um, uh, psychological approaches might be used, not just in treatment, but also in prevention. So we we managed to prevent depression within the um, uh, uh, the Basel trial, and um, I think as a society. We're probably starting to think that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And we also think about that in terms of depression as well. So um, so those are my final thoughts. Yeah, I would agree. I don't think there's, there's, there's much I would add to that. I, th- I think, you know, over a number of studies now, we've looked at this intervention and it's proved itself to be firstly very acceptable uh, to people, very uh, flexible in terms of the ways and the places uh, that it can be delivered. Uh, so, so I think one of the the key things to think is to understand the impact of of loneliness and depression in older people, and, and recognise the impact of this that as, but also recognise that there's pretty straightforward and, uh, as Simon said, scalable interventions that can be delivered in lots of places, as Judith highlighted, and uh, we need to recognise the importance of this because this is a problem that. I think is is with us and is is going to grow, and it's important that as a society we recognise it and take some steps to deal. Well, thank you so much for those really valuable thoughts, and thank you so much for speaking to us today. So, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. For more information on the Basel trial, the article was published in our February issue, and as with all our content, is open access. And we'll be back next month.